Well, good morning, everyone. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time with us this morning, we are so delighted that you're here, and we invite you to stop back at the Welcome Center after the service this morning. It's between the two sets of doors as you leave this room. There we have a gift bag for you and people who would love to share with you more about who we are as a body of believers. Before, as a church family, we look into God's Word together, will you pause with me and let's recognize again God's Spirit in our midst. So, Father, we do, together, as a group, come and we bow before you today. We recognize that you alone are the Lord and apart from you there is none other. And as we've sung this morning, hallelujah, let everyone praise, give praise to you, God. That's our heart. We want to not just sing it, but we want to say it and we want to live it. And as we sung too, Spirit of the living God, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And so as best we can, we set our hearts before you and we invite you to come now. You be our teacher and help us to see Jesus more clearly for it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. When my uh, family uh, lived uh, those years in Argentina, there was one Sunday where I had the opportunity to go to one of the Argentine Alliance churches. So it's part of our larger Alliance church family. It was up in the northwestern suburb of the capital city. And it was a great little church, but it was experiencing an interesting challenge. Great group of people. But the area of the city in which they lived was near uh, what in Argentina they would call a Vija. It's kind of like a shanty town. Uh, just picture any kind of third world shanty town, you know, no electricity, no running water, open sewer. Um, just kind of thrown together places where people live, that was this Vija, and it was growing. At that time, it uh, grew to about thirty to 40,000 people, so about twice the size of our town. And the borders of this Vija was encroaching upon the territory of where this church was. It had been there, you know, a number of years, and over time, uh, this, this Vija was growing, and as a church, they were wrestling together, what do we do? Because the Vija brought with it all kinds of challenges. They said to themselves, do we pick up and move and kind of go to another area in our place, uh, you know, in the city where they, you know, still had a presence? Or do we stay where we are? Because the Vija was getting closer each year. In fact, the Sunday that I was there after the morning service, the pastor and me and a couple of people who actually lived in the Vija uh, took me out to, to walk through to kind of gain a feel for the people and uh, how they lived and some of the challenges that they faced. Um, if someone who lived in the Vija didn't take us, we wouldn't go in because even the police didn't go in this particular Vija because it was dangerous. Right, if they went in to go look for someone, they'd go in like, you know, 40 or 50 strong as a group to go in, get what they wanted, and then come out. Just on a daily thing, they didn't patrol this place where lots of people lived. And as it was getting close, they began to have a ministry to particularly kids that lived in this Vija. 
Uh, they had some VBS things that started, and then they had like a Sunday school and different kids' programs, and a number of kids started to come. But they posed a huge challenge. Why? Well, they, they were kids who came from uh, pretty rough environments. Um, you know, maybe they went to school. Probably they didn't go to school. Uh, their environments were chaotic. Not a lot of love and grace where they lived. And the pastor said there were days when it was maddening, where he felt like pulling his hair out and picking up the church and leaving because the kids would come in and they'd do things like write on the walls, they'd break the chairs, they didn't sit still and listen to stories. I mean, they were hard kids to love let alone, you know, develop some kind of ministry to and, you know, engage. And, of course, their heart's desire was not only just to impact the kids, but also impact moms and dads and the environment that they were coming to. But it was a huge challenge. But as a church, they decided together, they made the intentional choice that they were willing to experience all the chaos and messiness of that environment, right? They were willing to become and feel uncomfortable so that the kingdom of heaven would expand, that they would then have an opportunity to make an impact upon kids and the families where they came from. Well, that is the issue really for all of us who say that we are followers of Jesus, Are you and am I, are we together willing to feel uncomfortable in order that the kingdom of God might increase and expand in our midst? And this short little narrative about the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is both prepared and launched for his ministry that we'll see unfold in the weeks and months coming ahead in the book of Acts, this short little narrative, two verses long, reveals for us the way in which God was going to not only establish his kingdom, but also have victory over this broken world to which Jesus was coming. So if you have your Bibles, turn again to Luke chapter 3, and I want us to look at these two verses this morning and focus on where that comes from, how Luke, as he is presenting the baptism of Jesus, kind of sets the stage. You know, it's kind of like an egg where you crack it open and the omelet that's going to be made in the rest of the book, well, the initial things are right here in the account of the baptism. So the context is this, chapter 3, right? Pastor Jeff walked us through this last week with John the Baptist as he was preparing the way for this one to come, you know, this voice crying out in the wilderness from this prophetic word from the book of Isaiah and how the crowds were coming out to be baptized. Well, here in these verses, Jesus too comes to be baptized. Now, not a baptism of repentance in Jesus' case, but in a sense that in baptism, he's identifying with the people that he's come to reach and to save. And as the people are being baptized, Jesus also, Luke tells us, is baptized. And as he's praying, right, the Spirit of God descends upon him and 
he, he uses this image of a dove to kind of describe, you could imagine a dove, a bird coming down to land and settle. So the Spirit of God kind of, in some analogous fashion like that, settles upon Jesus. And then we get this voice from heaven. Now, it's not an angelic voice. Uh, earlier on in Luke's gospel, uh, we have a couple of angels, you remember that, appear. One of those is to Mary to kind of tell her what's happening. But here, it's a voice from heaven. It's a divine voice. It's the voice of God himself, God the Father. And he says these words, you are my son whom I love. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this word that God speaks from heaven over Jesus isn't just random words, you know, well, God loves his son and he's pleased with him, but it's very purposeful what this voice from heaven says, what God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And this phrase is rooted particularly in two passages of scripture, there's some allusions to elseplace, elsewhere in the Old Testament, but specifically, it's rooted in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And this voice from heaven not only affirms and confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah, but it also signals for us the direction and the scope, the, the direction and nature of the calling of the Messiah. And in fact, the rest of the book of Luke is going to flesh that out for us as we see how Jesus lives and moves in these pages. So what I want to do is look at those two passages this morning. So keep one finger in Luke chapter 3 and flip back first to the book of Psalms, Psalm number 2. And I want, to look, want us to look at this uh, together. Psalm 2, right at the beginning of the book of Psalms, and it is, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that as the New Testament looks back on, and as they understand what the book of Psalms is saying, Psalm 2 in particular, it is not just any old psalm, but it's a psalm about the Messiah. It's a psalm about the coming king, and particularly it, it is about his enthronement as king. So let me read, I won't read all of it, but just a portion of it beginning in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 2, and you follow along. Begins, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's going on here is the Lord, right, is Lord and his anointed one. The nations of the world are in a state of rebellion. They don't want to recognize his authority over him, over them. God's rulership and God's rulership of his anointed one over the people. And they say among themselves, let's throw off their authority over us, right? Let's throw off their bonds and their cords from us, that which binds us to them. 
Well, the psalm continues. Psalm 2, verse 4 goes on to say, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And then the rest of the psalm goes on to say, Uh, Kind of a warning to the nations, right? If you don't bow down to this one, right, judgment is going to come. He says at the very end, the last verse, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So there is this picture in this psalm of God establishing his anointed one upon the throne. And God says of this anointed one specifically, you are my son. Well, there are links in Psalm 2 to even to an earlier passage in the Old Testament, and that's 2 Samuel chapter 7, a, a significant passage in the Old Testament. If you've never read it, this afternoon when you've got some time, go read 2 Samuel 7, where it tells us uh, that God is going to make a house for David. That's, this is the story where uh, David says, I want to build a house for God. I want to build a temple for him. And God comes to him through Nathan the prophet and says, listen, you think you're going to build a house for me? No, I'm going to make a house for you. And I'm going to set your son upon the throne and his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. So Psalm 2 is a poetic expression of that earlier prophetic word to King David which in the baptism, God, right, the Father, is speaking over his son when he says, this is my son, my beloved one. This is my beloved son. Psalm 2 is one of those places that he's referring to. And he is affirming, he is confirming that Jesus, this one getting baptized, is the Messiah. He is the one that is going to sit on a throne and his kingdom is going to be an eternal kingdom. Now, flip back to Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, but rather than go to chapter 3, flip back a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 1 and let me remind you of something that we've already looked at. Just so you see further the connection here, what's going on in the Gospel of Luke. So, Part of what's revealed in Luke chapter 1 is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her that uh, you're going to bear a child, a baby. And then look at verse 30. The angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now look at 32. The angel goes on to say, he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So now we come back to chapter 3, the baptism, right? 
As Jesus is baptized, this voice from heaven, God from heaven says first, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. And he is affirming Jesus as king, the son of David, who will sit upon the throne and his kingdom will never end. It will be an eternal kingdom. And in a sense, all this truckload of background truth comes to bear in this baptism scene. And in a sense, Jesus then fulfills all the hopes and dreams for God's kingdom that is in the Old Testament. See, all the anticipation and expectation of finally the king is here to set up his kingdom, God's kingdom. But what Luke wants to help us see is that the kingdom that God envisioned for his people was not the kingdom that they themselves hoped for and longed for. You see, the Jewish people had their own picture of what the king and the kingdom would look like. You know, they were looking for a king to come in and dominate and to rule you know, to kick the Romans out. But Luke gives us a very different picture of this king and his kingdom. And he does it, and he does it even with the phrase to follow. For this voice from heaven not only says, you are, you are my, my beloved son, but with you I am well pleased. Now that last phrase is also much, also very much rooted in the Old Testament. So keep a finger in Luke chapter 3 and flip with me back to the book of Isaiah. And let's look at Isaiah 42 together. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, all that section, right? Isaiah chapter 42. And let me read uh, verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah's uh, book here. Begins this way, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, and he will faithfully bring forth justice. He won't grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all the earth. Now, there are elements here in Isaiah of this, this kind of kingly function, one who's going to come and establish justice in all the earth and and in a sense, the coastlands wait for his law and his rule. But here in Isaiah, rather than coming as a king, he comes as a what? A servant. And in fact, Isaiah 42 is part of a larger section of the book, from Isaiah 40 to the end, where there is this picture of this servant this one who will come. And how does he bring justice? How does he bring, you know, righteousness upon the earth? 
not as a king who comes in a sense with authority and power, but he comes as a servant. He's like a bruised reed that doesn't break. He's like a faintly burning wick, like you light a candle and the wick is really small and, you know, the wind kind of goes by and it flickers and you think it's going to go out. But it doesn't, is what Isaiah says. It looks frail. It looks humble. And part of the picture of this servant in the book of Isaiah goes on to say things like in Isaiah 53 that he'll further be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so what is going on, flip back to Luke chapter 3, what is going on in this very tight, very short narrative, two verses long, the story of the baptism of Jesus, is this, in very brief form, the king and his kingdom. Yes, absolutely, he is the king who sits on the throne, who is the son of the Most High. And of his rule, there will be no end. But at the same time, without contradiction, what does that kingdom look like? And how does that king reign as a servant? who suffers, who enters into the hard thing of life. And the kind of kingdom that he is going to bring about is the kind of king and kind of kingdom that is radically different than what Israel was expecting and what they were hoping for. And he does so furthermore with the presence and power of the Spirit of God upon him. And Jesus himself throughout the rest of the book of the Gospel of Luke, will model for us the mode of the kingdom and the kind of kingdom life that he will unfold and how that kingdom, therefore, expands and grows in the world. And furthermore, here in Luke chapter 3, it's not just a nationalized kingdom, right? It's just not a local kingdom, but it is, in fact, a universal kingdom, And how does Luke reveal that? Well, not only in this divine voice that goes back to passages like Psalm 2, but also in the rest of chapter 3, Luke records for us the genealogy of Jesus. Starts with Joseph. And unlike the book of uh, Matthew, where the genealogy goes from Jesus to to whom? You know, to Jesus. Abraham, here in chapter 3, it runs all the way to Adam and then to God himself. So the genealogy of Jesus is not just a nationalistic kingdom. It's not just about the people of Israel, but it goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to the very beginning. And it, it, and it will encompass the entire globe, all people everywhere. See, the kingdom is universal. It's not just for a select few, and it's not just for, you know, a few good countries, but it's for everyone. It's for peoples everywhere. 
And as Luke will unfold, we will see that Jesus doesn't just walk this path himself, but as the king of the kingdom, those who would enter the kingdom, those who would become his followers, Luke will tell us that we must walk that path too. You see, he establishes not just the path of Jesus, but he also establishes the paradigm for his kingdom and his kingdom followers. You see, if Jesus embraced that path, so must we too. I suppose in many ways, it's kind of an upside-down kingdom. Sometimes it's described that way. And Jesus says all these uh, counterintuitive things. In uh, Luke 19, he'll say things like, if you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's like, it's like upside down. It's, it's counterintuitive. I, I want to find my life. When Jesus says to find it, you have to lose it. But if you lose it, you'll find it. That's why Jesus says things like in Luke 19, we'll look at in the days ahead, where he says things like, if you will follow me, you have to deny yourself. And in fact, you have to take up your cross, your cross, and you have to follow me. That's how the king works. And that's how his kingdom functions. And if we as a people, if we as individuals, and, we, and if we as a church want to see the kingdom advance, then we've got to do it the king's way. Is he king? Absolutely. Does he rule? No doubt. But he does so as a servant. This is why Jesus will say things like, for the Son of Man did not even come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if I really want to see the kingdom advance, then, then I really have to be willing to, to feel uncomfortable, to embrace that which is tough and hard and messy and sometimes very chaotic. It means being willing to get close to people. You know, at a distance, we all look nice and wonderful. But when we start to get close to one another, right, we know the reality. Um, we're all a bit messy in some way or another. And that what it, that's what it means to be part of the kingdom. Well, getting close to people uh, means being willing to get messy and to be uncomfortable. Even in very simple things, like, you know, we, we come to church on a Sunday morning and we want to talk to our friends, right? People that we know, people that we have, you know, more than just a casual an acquaintance with. And they make us feel comfortable and we're comfortable around them. For us to go talk to someone that we don't know, maybe someone who's new, that pushes us. But if we are kingdom people, it means that we are willing to embrace being uncomfortable. It means that we embrace not only 
the nice portions of our community, but the more challenging parts too. Um, That's not easy. But if the kingdom is going to advance, and let me say even this, the only way the kingdom advances is when the people of the kingdom press into things like becoming uncomfortable, uh, being pushed, entering into things that are hard and not easy. But when we do that, we will find also the life of the kingdom because that's where the kingdom's life and abundance and joy and power begins to unfold within us. Now, on Wednesday evenings, I'm, uh, I'm part of a team that does the, the large group story time. And uh, sometimes we think, well, wouldn't it be fun, you know, to have all the good kids? <laughs> because they sit still and they listen, you know, they're not poking one another. It's one thing for, you know, kids are kids. Kids are, are going to be kids. But, um, but when it goes beyond just kids being kids, right, then it becomes uncomfortable, And it'd be far easier to tell the story to a large group if it was just, you know, certain kids. But that's not how the kingdom expands, right? It means being willing to step in some things that are uncomfortable, things where it's messy, things where it's chaotic. It's where people don't know how to behave, in a church context, whatever that means, right? You know, some of us get riled up when someone comes to, you know, church and they got a hat on. Won't you know you're supposed to take your hat off when you come inside? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Does it really matter? And what's kingdom life all about anyway? Now, I want to come to church and I want to hear the kind of music that I like. I don't want to hear music that I don't like, that someone else may like that maybe people on our town might like. Are we, am I, are you, individually, willing to embrace some, some things that are uncomfortable, things that push us, things that we wish weren't so chaotic and messy, so that the kingdom of heaven might increase. Because the reality is that's really the only way it does increase. Jesus is the model. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But here's the wonder that when we enter into it, we find the joy and power and delight and all the good things that the kingdom brings when we step into it. So how is God speaking to us as a church body? How is he speaking to you as an individual? Where might some specific areas that the Spirit of God would be speaking to us, speaking to you, that he would say, listen, I want you to embrace something that might be uncomfortable for you so that the kingdom of God can expand. You know, maybe it's getting to know some people in your neighborhood who you don't particularly like, 
They don't particularly enhance the neighborhood, but they're there. And apart from someone who's in the kingdom, who knows the king coming and sharing with them life, they're not going to find it. Maybe it's someone at work who, uh, you know, doesn't bless you particularly when you go there Monday through Friday. But when we are willing, like the king, to embrace something that is uncomfortable, we'll be amazed what God will do in us and through us for his namesake. You you can kind of describe it, our experience here as a stadium, right? You can come to the stadium and sit in the cheap seats way up high and kind of watch and observe, Or you can come down out of the stands and get on the field and get in the game where the joy is. Yes, it's tough and hard and messy sometimes, but that's where life is found. And we so do, we will find the king there in our midst and the joy of seeing his kingdom expand for his namesake. So as we close this morning, Pastor Bo is going to come and uh, just play a little bit on the piano for us. I want to give you an opportunity just to sit and reflect and to allow the Spirit of God to say to you, here are some areas in your life, opportunities, for you to enter into some messiness of life, to enter into the uncomfortable realities of those around you so that my kingdom might expand. And I want to invite us as a church, too, to be praying in these days ahead. Father, where are you calling us as a church body together to take steps of faith, to enter into some hard things, some messy things, some uncomfortable things, so that God's kingdom will come. So, Father, that is our prayer. We pray it in the way that you taught us to pray. You said that we should pray like this. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Jesus, we would confess that that's a hard prayer for us to pray. We know we're supposed to pray it. But it pushes us sometimes beyond where we want to go. And Lord, today we would say together, we would invite you together to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we sang even before we looked at your word that we want to hear from you, that we need to hear from you, that we want to hang on your every word. So, Spirit, we invite you now to come and speak to us. Speak to us in our individual life and uh, speak to us in our corporate life too. Lord, we want to be willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom. But uh, we need your help. Holy Spirit, just as you fell upon Jesus in his baptism, so now we would pray that you would fall upon us. That heaven would open 
and that you would descend upon us and that you would speak, that you would fill us, but that you would also show us ways that you are calling us, things that you're calling us to step into that might not be particularly easy for us. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are responsive to the things that you want to say to us. And Lord, just in a moment or two, we pray that that you would speak to us. For Jesus, we ask it in your name. Amen.